This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning. It's just after one minute past nine. You are tuned to 102.7 3RRR, maybe listening via rrr.org.au. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are about the things all wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And I'm Cade Mills. And you could be listening into the future as well. Yeah. I did that just yesterday to catch up on last week's show. <laughs> unless, you're, unless you've... Um, I was going to make a federal election reference there about living in the past, but anyway. Oh, there's been enough swearing in the green room this morning, Bron. You don't need to bring it on air. <laughs> All by me. <laughs> That's all right. You tempered it. There were children around. Yes, I yes. did. Actually, it's probably good that April was here. Uh, thank you very much, Tim, for your wonderful vital bits. And thank you very much, Andrew, for your soulful bits. And uh, it was it was one of those occasions where I was driving in listening, thinking, how, how am I going to talk about the importance of... <laughs> the marine environment for a full hour after what just happened last night and um hearing soulful bits i was telling andrew when i came in that it was just it kind of lifted me gave me a bit of hope it does that to me every sunday morning i I very much enjoy listening to it and it's sort of a regular feature around the house at home usually we're up early and listening to tim and then andrew comes on and i thought tim had a nice mellifluous voice but andrew sort of it's even more soothing, yeah. which we need this morning. Absolutely. If you're wondering what we're talking about, if you've just woken up, if you kind of went to bed or went out last night thinking, yep, we're going to wake up and it's going to be all different, it's not. No. And uh, you you can read and listen to all sorts of, uh, um, I guess, breakdowns, assessments of what happened in yesterday's federal election, well, but it looks like we've got more of the same for the next few years. You can't avoid it, basically. No. You're going to have to read it. Yeah. Great. Queensland had a large part to play so we'll see what comes out of that as well i would just encourage everyone who's listening right now to um to you know go and listen and read and take it all in and then on friday morning at nine o'clock tune in for on the blower because uh (laughs) (laughs) that's actually going to be the highlight of my week this week coming up it's nodding i would actually be quite interested to listen to there was the show on last was it last night the election show that was on i didn't actually listen to it did you listen to it ken i did Good stuff. Good stuff. So I wonder, was there much swearing going on last night or was it too early? Hop on the mic, Kent. Come on. Yeah. We're going to get you on the mic. Uh, Yes. Well, it was very good. It was really good. There was a cast of thousands uh, uh, commenting and, um, yeah, I turned the telly down. That was annoying me and just had that uh, as as my audio. Would it be worth going back and listening to... Maybe not straight away. <laughs> well, it depends <laughs> how you feel, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's a, it is a hard thing to do, particularly coming in. Uh, we will get into our, today's program in a second, but it, it is a hard thing to do coming in this morning, and not just for us. You think about you know radiotherapy and what they do, and what Einstein and GoGo, what they do. It's all about. I guess, uh, speaking about the values that are are near and dear and core to our hearts and particularly in terms of what we do in terms of speaking about the marine environment, how important it is and how crucial it is that we care for it in the broader context of what's happening with the climate and and then seeing the result of what happened yesterday. So I guess we take stock of that and, and start to rebuild. Well, hopefully Anth will do his usual and read some of the documents that come out of the government and what we get sort of promised and where money's promised to go, but I can remember in the lead It'll up be the, the Liberal segment government in the history wasn't of Radio too Marinara. promising <laughs> for the marine environment, I'm afraid. Exactly. Yes. 
All right. Today's there are thank yous as well, but so thank you, Tim, and thank you, Andrew. Today's program uh, shortly. Rex Hunter is going to be joining us in studio. He's going to be running us through the recent finding of the uh, Iron Crown, not the Iron Throne, and we'll talk about that in the context. <laughs> can't help yourself, can you, bro? <laughs> I can't. Ten years tomorrow is the last episode ever of Game of Thrones. If you're listening and rolling your eyes and going, oh, my God, she's one of those people, yes, I am. And it's okay. I won't be talking about that too much. In fact, that's probably it. Um, but the circumstances around uh, surrounding torpedoing, and that's all I know from what um, from what Rex has told me, so we'll find out more about that shortly. Fascinating. Hmm. We are then going to uh, cro- cross to, uh, I think she's in, right, catch up with uh, Jackie Younger from dive to You. She's going to be telling us about the results of their Oyster Watch. It's a citizen science project project which I'm guessing you're familiar with. I'm very familiar with, yes. yes. So pulling up some settlement plates down at uh, Blegarry uh, Marina and uh, having a look at what's been growing on them. And we'll also have a chat with Jackie about a dive report. It's been incredible diving this weekend. Yeah, I have a feeling the dive report will be... Turn the, get down the coast and get in the water. Yes. Uh, then we're going to jump over to Perth. We're going to be speaking with artist Erin Coates. She was in Melbourne recently uh, to promote um, a new exhibition which is on in St Kilda. It's called Dark Water. So it explores the concept of oceanic goth with a twist of horror. Well, the pretty deep cool. seas pretty much has that about it and the creatures that live in there, like that's that's goth. Yes. I mean, there's there's your inspiration for Alien and... Yeah, you know, a lot of those darker sort of movies. So it uh, makes I can see that. Yeah, so it'll be really, really good. Looking forward to speaking uh, with Erin about this new exhibition. It's been on for about a week, maybe a couple of weeks, and it's it runs um, until June. So we'll speak with her about that. And then Cade, final instalment about noise underwater. I know, and I was even going to bump my own segment with another segment, but I ended up going to sleep at about eight thirty last night, so I didn't have time to do the research. So yeah, we're going to hear a little bit about how noise affects decisions that fish make, and try and I guess relate it to how noise affects the decisions we've perhaps made over our life as well. Mm. That's it. That's it. Good o. Uh, let's listen to. Uh, um, no, we're going to have. Uh, We've got uh, some weather. Yes, that's what I was trying We've to got say. Got some weather. So. If you're a surfer or a diver, get out there would be my uh, quick take Mm -hmm. on it. But today on the water, so Phillip Island advanced surfers will find great waves at Woolamai. Morning to Peninsula is going to have some great surf as well. And on the surf coast, it's going to be a little bit smaller, but 13th and sort of your beaches are going to pick up more of the swell. We've got a high tide at Point Lonsdale at 12.28pm, so smack bang in the middle of the day, perfect timing. And then the low will be at about 6 o'clock this afternoon, so if you want to head out to the reefs. The weather today is beautiful. Get out there. It's going to be a top of 21. Yesterday was much the same and it was spectacular. I just spent the day walking around the city. It was beautiful time of year. Tomorrow is going to be 20 with an overnight low of 14, so it's going to be quite mild tonight. Enjoy it. Then Tuesday, 20. Wednesday, 19. Thursday, 21. Friday, 19. And Saturday, 17. So we actually have some beautiful conditions that are coming up. The overnight lows are starting to get down, which is typical autumn, so it's nice and crisp in the morning Mm. and then fine for the rest of the day. So a good week ahead. If you don't have to work, make sure you get down the coast and get in the water and go surfing or go for a dive. Awesome. A couple of quick things before we listen uh, to some music. I want to put out a big shout-out to the Thin Green Line and uh, Sean Wilmore in particular. Um, Jane Goodall was in town last week or the week before last and uh, I would look, thank you to Sean and to um, to John Fleming and Kath Haylock uh, from the Tulum General Store. Kath is and Tulum General Store are triple R subscribers as well. <laughs> but thanks for the three of those. Um, 
I, I was extremely privileged and lucky to go along to uh, a, a presentation, a very small scale presentation by Jane Goodall down in um, down at Merrick's wow. last Sunday, and it was totally unexpected. It was just an invitation to go down and catch up with them, and and um, the next thing I found myself sort of sitting there and watching Jane Goodall speak, and and particularly in the context of what's been happening in in Australian federal politics, just to hear those messages a week ago has just sort of it's kept the fire going to do what we need to do. So look, um, big shout out to the Thin Green Line. The International um, Rangers Day will be coming up soon, I believe. From memory, it's in July. So uh, look, thanks so much to you guys, and we've been supporters of theirs for a very, very long time. Both here at Radio Marinara, but at Triple R as well. What a fantastic opportunity, mm. Brian. So thank you, guys. Uh, more on that at a later stage. Uh, you've got some news there, Kate. I had just a quick one, um, and this is to do probably because I've been suffering from multiple viruses with my son going to childcare and bringing them all home. We've actually got a list on the door, and we're, we've got four down so far, and apparently we've got quite a few to go. But this one is basically that some scientists spent... What, from 2009 to 2013, they journeyed around the oceans looking for viruses. So it was thought in the marine environment we had 15,000 documented. Uh, by the end of their trip, we now know that there's at least 200,000. Wow. Yeah. Viruses. So, viruses in the marine environment. Huh. Now, I'm just going to read something from the article, so I'm just going to read directly about viruses. So I'm, this is not an area of study that I'm familiar with or really understand at all, but viruses exist at the fringes of life. They don't have cells or perform normal biological processes or independently reproduce. Instead, they're more or less bags of genetic material that bump into living cells and inject those cells with the genetic instructions to produce more viruses. That's a pretty good way of summing up viruses. So we thought we had 15,000, we now have 200,000 of them. They found um, really high numbers around the equatorial sort of reasons, regions and also in the Arctic and actually sort of found five distinct sort of areas they would have thought with all the mixing in the ocean you would have much the same everywhere but they actually found they did seem to sort of go off into different areas and what they've said is basically it's uh, this provides the base map for all future studies. Um, mm. We know very little about their role in the marine environment, you know, there's probably a handful of studies. There's probably more than a handful, but there's sort of a handful that I know that have come to light about it. That was my next question. What do they do? Well, what, I, what kind of creatures do they affect? Well, this might be the next segment that I end up getting bumped multiple no. times. Is <laughs> <laughs> it's it is something that it only just came across this morning. I saw it and I just thought it's a fascinating thing to sort of just I guess put out there. So if anyone out there actually studies viruses or has any idea about marine virus, please get in touch. It'd be great to have you on the show yeah um, and again it's just something we just we don't know let's do some let's do some homework and yep we'll make that a priority yeah. so this was just just to bring up a, another future segment yeah, yes brilliant yeah. <laughs> we'll make sure we have time for your noise segment at the end of today's show so we can absolutely do that and without further ado <laughs> welcome rex hunter thank you eventually thanks wow. um, but, but tough act to follow yeah. <laughs> um, now, I don't know if you're aware of why I played that particular intro theme <laughs> for you because you've come to talk to us about the Iron Crown right yes right uh, you don't watch Game of Thrones. You're, you're unaware. <laughs> yeah, he's of looking very puzzled. The Iron Throne yes. and what that means. No. Okay. All right. Well, welcome. <laughs> Is it on the ABC? <laughs> <laughs> no, and I don't think it ever will be. Um, you know. Anyway, welcome. And uh, so. What's, but let's start with um, the Iron Crown. What is the Iron Crown? Well, the Iron Crown's a, uh, well, it's a steel steamer um, and it was under charter to uh, BHP in 1942 
um, carrying iron ore between Wyala in South Australia and uh, and Newcastle to be obviously smelted down to make iron for the war effort for everyone. Just and um, it just happened to be travelling southwest of Gay Bay Island when it's torpedoed and sunk. So torpedoed by who? Ah, well, this is where I have to build up the story. Oh, sorry, now. sorry. <laughs> Let the narrative continue. <laughs> well, we'll go back to the beginning. So, as most people would know, most people over 40 would know that um, Germany invaded Poland in 1939, September 1939. And from there, virtually the next day, Australia, uh, England declared war on Germany, and then being part of the Commonwealth, we followed suit, so we declared war on Germany as well. And um, from there, there was a phony war went for a number of months between the um, England and uh, Germany, where not much happened. And then... When you say phony war, is that because... There wasn't anything happening. There wasn't any campaigns or... It's just, you know, a bit here and there, but... The and a lot of talk. A lot of talk. A lot right. Of yeah. And press coverage, presumably. I assume so. Yeah, but, just building up. Yeah, it was called, it was called the phony war. And okay. they thought, it was, you know, it wasn't going to do anything with it. Um, but obviously... <laughs> Time proved them wrong. The Germans, um, I'll just introduce some of the things, precursors to the J- Japan getting in world, into World War Two. So Germany built, um, they had great success in World War One with auxiliary cruisers where they get cruisers, um, merchant ships cruising around the oceans of the world and they can cause a great deal of diversion destruction. Just by having one merchant cruiser, you can get divert whole, you know, virtually whole navies chasing this one cruiser around the world and then the rest of your your army or navy can be attacking other sites. They had a, um, built a couple of, converted a couple of um, ships, merchant ships. One was a mine layer and the other one was an auxiliary cruiser and they, they both carried mines. So they laid minefields, the Passat and the Penguin laid minefields off um, Cape Otway and through Bass Strait um, off the Prom and across to New Zealand as well and up the east coast of Australia. So they were quite successful. They actually sank the, um, sank the city Ravel off uh, Cape Otway in early December 1940 to, follow, uh, to be followed by the Cambridge. Or one, one, one was just like days before the other. So the mm. uh, two big two big Birchard ships and that actually was America's... F- city of Ravel was America's first loss in World War II. And the uh, the, the uh, Cambridge was a, a British merchant ship travelling across the bottom, not expecting anything to happen when it ran into a minefield. That's unbelievable. So yeah, I'm curious, at the minefields, have they been cleaned up since? Is there potential that there's still yeah, some rusty ones sitting out, <laughs> out there? Is that well, they used to wash up, wash up on the beach occasionally during the war um, and become great barbecue and um, fireplaces at Port Island. Fire pits. <laughs> <laughs> to Port Arlington in the 1960s. Did not know any of this. Yeah. So um, after that, Japan uh, Japan became part of the Axis, Axis powers, and then um, obviously attacked Pearl Harbor. And Australia, being part of, wanted to be in on the game, they declared war on Japan virtually the uh, the same day as as America. 
So let's go back to the Iron th- uh, Crown. <laughs> <laughs> we are slowly getting yeah. there. <laughs> it's a very big day coming up tomorrow for uh, for me and you know millions and millions of people around the world who are about to watch the final episode of Game of Thrones. But I will. I've actually written the Iron Throne down on my nose, which is why I keep accidentally saying it. The Iron Crown. So it's been recently discovered. It, Can you talk us through the the uh, the um, situation leading up to the actual finding of it, the circumstances? Well. I'll get to the sinking first. Okay. <laughs> the, the Japanese submarine I-20, uh, I-27 was operating off the coast of Australia in June, June 1942, running a campaign against merchant ships. They end up sinking the whole, in, in total, about 22 merchant ships off Australia. And said so one of them was the Iron Crown. So I said the uh, Iron Crown was making its way from um, Wyala, South Australia, to... Uh, Newcastle, torpedo sunk. Um, 38 people lost their lives out of 45, crew of 45, 43, 45, and then um, it just disappeared off the face of the earth for uh, 77 years or whatever it was. And where was it sunk again? It sank, sunk southwest, about 100 kilometres southwest of Gabo Island. Right, okay. So sort of Malakuta area. Yeah. So, um, CSIRO's vessel, the investigator, travels. All, th- all around Australia, you know, does his cruises for a number of months per year. And if you, you can put a, a proposal forward to um, be a, a science, if you have science, a science project you want to run, and you look at the cruises and you see, oh, they're going, passing through Bass Strait, it's about a time you can put in a proposal to them. And so Heritage Victoria did that, mm. got the green light, and um, Maddie. Maddie was going to run the show, but she ended up getting a, a job up in Queensland, so she's moved up there to teach in maritime archaeology. This is Maddie who's come into our program yeah, before. Maddie yep. McAllister. Yep. And so um, Emily Jaffet, Jaffet from um, New South Wales, from the Australian Maritime Museum, got the uh, gig as the uh, chief scientist. And so through Heritage Victoria, um, the MWAV, we sort of come up with a series of positions because you can search through the historic record and find all, all this sort of stuff and it's going to put you within usually less than 10 miles. So they had a, a search area mapped out and uh, which was about three mile, three nautical miles, about two nautical miles and in that search zone they found it using a multi-beam. So a multi-beam is like, uh, like a, a, a depth sounder on steroids where mm. you <laughs> just gives you, can give you incredible images of the seabed and the bottom and so you get great you get great relief and um, a great image of the site. So they uh, they managed to ping it on one of those passes. And it's in an enormously deep piece of water, isn't it? Well, I know tech divers are keen, but I don't think they'll be going down 700 metres. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> so it's off, you know, near the continental shelf, uh, sort of south southwest of uh, Gabo Island. Yep. Um, so all we know is where it is, don't we? We don't have any sort of pictures or visuals from it no, yet. No, they put a drop camera on. Oh, OK. They dropped a... They, um, they, they've made a drop camera. It's not, it wasn't ROV, so it was just sort of swinging on the end of, you know, 700 metres of cable off the side of the boat as they motored up and down. And they got some quite good images. So mm. if you go to the CSIRO website, you can actually see some images and a bit of video of the site. And they've, they've done a great great job of finding it and solving a great an incredible mystery. And what happens now? Will they go back and, and obviously, you know, can't get anyone down that deep? And particularly in that piece of water too, because we're talking just, you know, off uh, Gabo Island, incredibly difficult conditions. Yeah, yeah. Um, they'll just 
they might go back with an ROV because they, they have ROVs that can go down you know, like 3,000 metres or more. And just to get some more detailed images. Just, just to get some more detailed images. And I think they're talking about having a, a war service on top of for some of the families of the victims because they, they didn't know where the vessel was. Because you're only talking about five or six people who survived. Yeah, yeah, there's mm. only about five, five survivors. So it's a pretty, pretty significant event. Definitely. Okay. I, I just have a request for Rex for future... <laughs> Can we hear more about, I guess, what it would have been like to be like on an Australian merchant ship around the time of World War Two? Like you were saying, the was it thirty odd boats? Yeah, it was like it wouldn't have been a job that people would have been jumping to no, at that actually, time. Actually, and I think it was about two or three hundred odd merchant seamen had died. It was actually, time, it was actually quite. Your stats were, weren't very good, and when we say Australia, that that's called the Australia Station. So that includes parts of the Indian Ocean up to New Guinea and. Uh, to Numea and all, all that, that encompasses, and that's not counting the warships. So, but there were Japanese yeah. um, submarines, like basically cruising around Australia looking for targets well, during that time. There was a Japanese submarine dropped a float plane off Port Lonsdale during World War Two. Um, plane flew up over Point Cook Air Base, um, over Williamstown Rifle Range, over Footscray Ammunition Factory, where they started finally started shooting at it and turned around. It was reconnaissance, doing reconnaissance, and flew back to Port Nonsale. They packed it up and just took it away. Jeez. Mm. All right, there's a few more stories to unpack. There are. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Uh, we'll have to move on, Rex. Any but, any uh, quick uh, tips about what's coming up for MAAV, Maritime Archaeology Association of Victoria? Well, as much as Dr Surf loves the big lows, we hate them because we, <laughs> we were blown out the other week when we were going back to the uh, Barbara side of uh, Rye, so we plan to go back there maybe another two weeks, weather been permitting. Off rye, so... Yeah, there's yep. two, a couple of great little uh, lime rec sites off there and uh, so we're doing some survey and we're going to do some photogrammetry cool. and get some, get some data. Excellent. Thanks, Rex. Yeah, no problems, Brian. We'll, we'll catch up with you in, uh, in a few weeks' time. And if people want to find out more about the Iron Crown as opposed to the Iron <laughs> Throne, <laughs> uh, because there's been quite a bit of... Um, coverage of this hasn't big been. media yeah, yeah. there's been a lot of media it's good it's for the csiro and heritage victoria yeah heritage victoria website would that be a good place for people to go yeah they'll find it there it. but csiro is probably the probably has the better because they have multi-beam image and uh, drop camera Im- images yeah so it's and because it was taken from the investigator as well yeah so yeah. that it's also good for the csiro because that gives them lots of media Instead of finding a new starfish or something, rather that we're oh. great to mention, which is just as important <laughs> as well. Much more, just as important. Thanks, Rex. No problems, bro. Excellent environment. Hey, Jackie's up for that. How are you, Jackie? Uh, hi, Bron. How are you this <laughs> yeah. morning? I heard that. <laughs> yes. Oh, we're good. How are you? Not too bad. Bit of a cold, but I'll get there. It's a bit uh, at that time of year, I think. It's starting to do the rounds. It sure is. I've. I blew out all my sinuses during the week on a dive. It was one of those oh, things where I forgot. That sounds like Cade. How are you? I'm doing well. Sorry, Jackie. I'm doing well. And it's really good that we've got both of you here because to talk about Oyster Watch, which has been a collaborative exercise, I guess for our listeners who maybe aren't aware of what Oyster Watch was, can you give us a quick snapshot of, of, of what Oyster Watch was or is? Yeah, well, Kay could probably answer this as well, but uh, Oyster Watch is funded out of the Port Phillip Bay Fund, so Reef Watch has um, had a purpose of collecting data on the natural recruitment around the bay of, of natural oysters, so it's in support of the Nature Conservancy 
um, shelf restoration project. So we're trying to highlight new areas to build reefs. And so there have been some settlement plates that have been, uh, they were put down mm-hmm. at, uh, is it mostly around Blegarry Marina? Well, there's quite a few locations. Uh, Cade might be able to fill us in on the new shellfish reef, but we've got Point Cook, Blegarry, Ricketts, Kerford Road, Frankston and Mordialic, and we're hoping next year to do Mornington as well. So we've just pulled out the last lots of the season at Blegarry. Um, they go for three-month cycles, so for between October and June. So we're deploying and, and collecting between those times. I don't need to say anything. That was perfect. Thanks, Jackie. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well done. <laughs> and, so, and so yesterday you've pulled up, was it yesterday, pulled up a whole oh, lot of plates? Last Sunday. Last Sunday? We out, yeah, last Sunday we pulled out the last um, lot for the season. But it's just a really great day. The actual deployment and retrieval is actually really quick. Um, so it's a bit of a bonus for the divers. They come in and give us a hand. We actually have a lot of hand on, uh, a lot of help on the surface as well. So it's not just for divers. As I say about everything, anyone can get involved. Um, and then once everyone's gone for a bit of a fun dive and we've um, collected the plates, we actually lay them out on the table and start counting and measuring for mussels and oysters on those actual PVC plates. And so what have you found so far with the plates that you pulled up last week? Well, the ones that are really interesting is just the sizes. We had really small, about one to five millimetres. AJ Morton, who has been running the whole project, is in Bali at the moment, lucky him. Um, he gave me some notes of interest as far as um, some of the um, the, the, shelf, the oysters at Mordialic have had um, quite low quality in their shell structure. And they've, he's also not, um, had some areas where the uh, oysters have been growing up to 50 millimetres in three months. So we've got a really, really diverse range of growth. Um, there is to be a report, and Cade might be up on, more up on this, to come out in a couple of months, which will give us some really hard data on what we've been looking at the last couple of years. Yeah, but each, mm. you're right. And uh, what the big thing that we've noticed is there's definitely a seasonality to it, which we kind of mm. knew before we started, but the mm-hmm. plates that go out in October, sort of the earliest time, tend to have more oysters and tend to be more successful. And then there's a fair bit of variability throughout the bay, so different areas seem to fire at different times. And this is just feeding in, I guess, to the Nature Conservancy's decision-making when it comes to expanding their reefs. But yes, there will be a report detailing all this and to come out. We've actually got a few years' worth of data, so it's not just a one and done. It's actually quite a few years, and we hope to build on it more to capture that variability. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. We'll have to move on in just a sec, but let's let's kind of touch base back on this. When oh, absolutely. Yeah, that sounds good. Oh, I can talk for hours about it. We're starting up in October, so if you keep an eye on the events page, and can I just squeeze in an event, Bron, while I've got a second? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's another seaside scavenge on a different topic in, on the 15th of June at Frankston Pier. So like the one we do at Rye, there's actually a big event happening in June, June 15th. So if anyone wants to get down in the water in winter or help us on the beach, that would be fabulous. And the seaside scavengers, are, they're a clean-up event, but they're a clean-up event with a twist, aren't they? Because, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So you get to, it's evolving all the time. So you collect your trash and you swap your trash for, um, bottle, you swap for bottle cups and then you swap, swap them for vouchers and you can get food and, and drinks and clothes and all sorts of things. So there's a bit of incentive there as well. So it's just a fabulous day out. We're going to start doing more of them. So June the 15th. Excellent. We'll, um, we'll definitely give that a plug in the weeks leading up to Thank June you. the 15th. But it's also awesome and hats off to the supporters, the businesses that are getting behind this as well. 
Oh, it's fantastic, and it's growing every year. The last one at Rye was huge, so we thought we should really should be doing them more more than once. So Frankston's the next one, so it should be should be great. Yeah, excellent. Good to hear. Now, quick dive report before we let you go, Jackie. Where would you go diving today? Oh, today, oh, look, but just about anywhere today. I'm in Dramana and there's no wind at all, so we've got a really gentle northeasterly wind, so you could pretty much go anywhere today. Um, I'm looking at the bay and it looks really flat. Mine, if I had to choose, I'd say Flinders on the on the incoming tide, but um, they're a bit spoilt for choice today. And I think the crabs may be coming out very soon. We've just had a full moon, so maybe head to Blair Gary and look for spider crabs. Spider crab season again. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jackie, thanks so much, and uh, we'll keep keep in touch with you. But particularly leading up to that uh, that event, the Seaside Scavenge on the fifteenth. Sure. Yeah, brilliant. No worries. Thank you so much. No worries. Always a pleasure. We'll catch Cheers, you soon. Cheers, Jackie. Bye, see you, Kate. See you, Bye. See you. Bye for now. Jackie Younger there from Dive to You. And, um, yes, uh, AJ is in Bali at the moment. We actually caught up with him a few weeks ago talking about the reef restoration um, diving holidays that he helps organise. Oh, yeah, those, they, they don't sit still. They're always doing something, whether it's out collecting rubbish or doing the diving holidays in Bali or helping with the settlement plates or yeah. everything. It's great. They've always got something on and it's always giving back to the environment it too. It is. It's positive and it's restoration work and giving back exactly as you say. Instead, we're about to catch up with Erin Coates and we're going to be talking with her about uh, a new exhibition which sort of explores the deepest parts of the ocean in an artistic sense. So often when we talk about the deepest parts of the ocean, we're describing a hostile and scary environment. It's dark, it's gloomy, it's devoid of colour and energy. And when the deep sea meets the arts, it kind of makes sense to extend that image to the genre that is horror and its subgenre of goth. So Erin Coates, she's a visual artist, she's a creative producer. Her work in film, sculpture and drawing examines our relationship with space and environment in which we live. And with her fellow artist, Anna Natsari, they've created Dark Water. It's an exhibition that draws on their research into marine flora and fauna and the experiences of deep sea divers. It explores a familial trauma and the dissolution of the human psyche in a strange waterlogged architectural space. In terms of what that means, we're going to find out now by crossing live to Perth to speak with artist and co-creator of Dark Water, Erin Coates. Good morning, Erin. Welcome to Radio Marinara. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Look, it's wonderful to have you on and thank you for getting up so early because we, uh, we're mindful of the fact that it's, it's quite <laughs> early in Perth right now. It's, it's a, certainly a crisp early morning over here right now, uh, but that, that's fine. It's good to talk to you folks. Oh, it's wonderful to have you with us. Um, let's start with that concept of oceanic goth with a twist of horror. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, okay, so in Australian cinema, there's kind of a sub-genre known as the gothic, which um, if you think of films like Wolf Creek and Picnic at Hanging Rock, it's often exploring nature as this um, hostile, kind of unhomely environment in which figures disappear and terrible things can happen. And it's this sense of not belonging in a way in certain wild spaces. Um, so, I mean, this is, a, this is a genre that's been explored kind of all over the world. In Australia, there's sort of particular cinema pieces that, that we can really point to. But what we were interested in is this notion of the oceanic Gothic. So often the Gothic is depicted in bushland or desert in Australia. It's this places you go to and never come back from. Um, what we wanted to look at was notions of the Gothic within the ocean and this idea this sense of um, of terror, of unknowing, of it not being 
an environment that um, is your home, that you're comfortable with, that is sort of beyond what your body knows. Um, and so to do this, we've basically combined deep sea oceanic spaces with somebody's home quite literally so the character in our short film discovers that there is a deep sea environment within the cavities of her own house wow yeah i think you've answered sorry erin it's kate here I, I think you've actually answered the question i was about to ask you and you were talking about all these the australian films and the sense of remoteness um mm. people can kind of relate to that because they've either been to the bush or they've sort of been out there whereas the deep sea is not a place that many people get to visit so i, I was wondering how you go about sort of getting us to relate to that environment mm. but by the sounds of it you're creating it in the house <laughs> yes, and it's, you know, it's no, it's no mean feat to do that. No. <laughs> it, was, it was quite difficult, but um, I mean, in a way, part of us travels to the ocean because we watch documentaries on it. We've watched a lot of um, science fiction films about the deepest parts of the ocean, like James Cameron's Abyss. So it's, it captures our imagination, and we all know that deep in our sort of evolutionary ancestry that we came from the ocean but it's it's no longer a space that we can easily inhabit um yet we still try to so um there's something about that fascination we have with the deep that we're partly exploring in this film um but there's other layers in there as well we're we're looking at the ocean almost as kind of a psychological space that the character enters that she's she's dealing with trauma in her life she's lost her mother she knows this thing she, do, she doesn't know about her family that she never got to speak to her mother about um, and in this film it really unravels and as it unravels she gets drawn into the waterlogged spaces within the house she gets drawn into this ocean inside the walls of her own house I'm sure there are many people listening right now, Erin, who are feeling, you know, they've woken up somewhat in a state of despair and in mm -hmm. a metaphorical sense are, are feeling this this morning that maybe that's a place where they really want to go given the, the fallout of what's happened with our federal election <laughs> yesterday. And, well, oh, you I'm know, sorry. maybe they can console themselves by going and watching Dark Water and being drawn into some deep, dark oceanic. Yeah, <laughs> and look, I'm not, I'm not saying that to be facetious or sort mm. of try and make light of the situation, but it's a it's a very real thing sometimes when we really do feel so so mm. uh, desperate and despairing that it, it in some ways it helps to go into that deep, dark place. It kind of makes it all real. Well, I think also, I mean, um, just to jump to the side a little bit with this, this, I mean, this film, it's about, in, in one sense, it's a, it's a metaphysical space that she enters, it's a psychological space being drawn into this ocean, but it's also, we're depicting real elements of local flora and fauna from deep sea environments around Australia's ocean habitats. And this film was really underscored by our concerns around habitat loss um, and environmental concerns. Um, and, you know, I think that we must feel a bit despairing about what is happening and the lack of sort of serious environmental mm. policy in our country um, because it's it's real and uh, we, we all do need to be concerned about it. It's interesting too, I guess, with you and your co-creator, Anna. Is Anna from Perth as well? Yeah, well, originally Anna is from Kalgoorlie, which um, is a mining wow. town inland. Yeah, it's and a long I'm way from, from the Albany. sea. <laughs> it's a long way. It's very interesting. We often talk about why we're drawn to this sort of um, oceanic themed work, 
Um, I'm from Albany, which is a coastal town, and it was it's actually the last place in Australia that had a commercial whaling station that yeah. closed the year I was born. Um, and Anna's from a mining town, and both of our families, her family have a background in mining, and mine have a, have a background in kind of ocean faring. Um, and so it's this sort of going deep into the natural environment in the literal sense, underground or under the water, and, and sort of pulling things from the deep and fossicking in these spaces. I think both of us, our families, share this in different spaces. So um, that, that's what we've tried <laughs> to draw a line between to understand why we're why we're obsessed with these kinds of ideas. Yeah, I find it fascinating, particularly, you know, in Perth and that whole Western Australian coastline, which is sort mm. of like, I guess, the, the West Coast's answer to the Barrier Reef and sort of slightly south of the Barrier Reef. Very tropical, warm waters. The You know, the image that you think of when you think of Western Australian waters mm. are, are corals and, and, you know, beautiful warm waters and a lot of those images, which, you know, obviously Tim Winton has written a lot about with his mm. writing as mm-hmm. well, to, to focus on the deep dark waters where it's cold and it's you know there's no light and you have all these strange creatures it's uh it's fascinating um yeah wanted to cover several elements of dark water so um i'm only going i haven't seen it yet i'm going to get down there and see it and we'll give the details of that in a minute so short film uh there's works on paper there's silicon there's ceramic sculptures and scrimshaw and i wanted to focus mm-hmm. a little bit on scrimshaw uh so scrimshaw it's etchings in whale teeth can we talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that and how you came across whale teeth Sure. I mean, you know, it is a really interesting art form to work in. There's not really, um, there's not really any contemporary Australian artists working with it. So um, we, we're really happy to talk about it because it's so unusual. So as I said, I, I grew up in Albany, which was a whaling town before I was born. And there's still a lot of relics left over from the days of whaling. So I grew up in a house that had like big whale teeth in it um, and lots of sort of imagery of the old whale chaser boats. Um, I know um, friends of my parents, when we go over there in their garden, they had a giant whale vertebrae that we used to sort of, um, a, a sort of trimming along the along the flower garden. Um, so there's still these, these relics and there's these stories as well that come with it of the days of whaling. Uh, and it was, you know, it's really, it was an industry that needed to end and even the even the people that worked within it could see that it it wasn't sustainable. But it was um, it was a real shock, I think, for some of those men when it ended very suddenly. Um, and scrimshaw is is a very old art form, and it's it's anywhere with scrimshaw, and it's basically taking the the tooth of a whale. And not all whales have teeth; a lot of them have baleen. Uh, but sperm whales have teeth; they have huge teeth. They're really beautiful. And there's quite a lot of sperm whale teeth still in Albany. And so etching into it with a very, um, very sharp, fine needle, and then you rub back in with ink to bring the image up. So it's a really hard art form because you're working blind. You can't really see until you rub the ink back in. Um, And we were just really interested in reinvigorating this art form and looking at a contemporary version of it, one that wasn't about the majesty of tall ships and, and glorifying whaling, but was trying to find another way of looking at whaling in there without it being um, without it being about trying to say how terrible this was. It was just, it's another perspective that we were trying to explore. In there, so was Scrim... That history. Sorry, was scrimshoring something that like a lot of the old whalers used to do if they're sitting on shore waiting for a whale to come by or something? Like, is there those sort of stories and history still there in Albany? Were you able to get that out? Yeah, I mean... Uh, 
it's a little it's a little different the contemporary version of scrimshaw because it was on shore but back back in the day when they'd go out on boats for weeks at a time sometimes even months um they would that's how scrimshaw began was that they would be waiting for the sighting of a whale they'd be far from far from home and they'd be etching into these teeth um often by oil lamp light and rubbing back in so a lot of the early examples of scrimshaw are this really fills with homesickness. It was often people uh, making portraits of their sweetheart back home, and they had this queasy feeling to them because the boat's rocking as they're making them. It's really <laughs> incredible old scrimshaw out there. The contemporary scrimshaw from sort of the last um, hundred years, uh, a lot of it was done on the shores. So it would be in between whaling. They would be. Um, documenting what they saw and documenting the ships that they were on. Um, and a lot of it was focused on maritime history and the actual act of whaling. But it, it was it was often very... Um, there's a certain majesty and heroism to the way that the imagery was depicted. Beautiful, beautiful works, but a, but a real perspective in there that we wanted to avoid. Um, but I, I need to point out as well that um, the teeth that we've worked with our antique sperm whale teeth. So there, there's no more marine ivory that you can work into. It's completely illegal to remove tooth from a dead whale and there's a complete ban on the sort of import and export of marine ivory. So it's it's for us it was about finding whale teeth um, in deceased estates and in auction houses um, and then deciding what to put on them because it's a you know they're a very loaded object um, and there's an op a lot of them left so we felt a great sense of responsibility working into them that was my question <laughs> knowing that you had limited amounts is there anything mm. similar that you practice on before or did you just go jump straight into using the teeth no, I was jumping straight into the teeth, so it was, you know, no pressure here. I've got like a antique whale tooth that can't be replaced. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so my collaborator, Anna Nazari, really forged the way with this. She did a lot of research um, and she really looked into the technique. And, I mean, you do have a little bit of leeway in the sense that if you really stuff it up, you can actually sand the tooth back further. You can sand away the lines that you've etched and you can work back in, but you can only do that so much and then you're getting down to layers that you can't etch into anymore so you just have to be really careful um but you know i mean both of us have a have kind of a long background as practicing artists making drawings and anna had done a lot of pyrographic drawing which is with, when you burn with a hot needle into wood so she had that experience already of of working into a material, literally into the layers of a material. So I'm fascinated. Um, I've got to go and check these yeah. out now. Yeah, good, good, yeah. very good yeah. timing to mention the details of this exhibition. So Dark Water, it's actually alongside another group show called Elements by Urban Aboriginal Arts Centre, Baluk Arts. Um, can you tell, actually, just before we give the details, can you tell, do you know much about Elements and how your two exhibitions sort of came together and complement each other? Sure. I mean, um, Baluka are an incredible art centre in the Mornington Peninsula um, and they have Aboriginal artists who live all around the Mornington area, um, but they may have come from anywhere else in Australia and uh, they, a lot of them are exploring narratives of reclaiming their 
Aboriginal identity and looking at family history and language. So there's um, a whole lot of artists from that art centre um, and they're just, it's an exquisite show and, and there are some connections to the ocean in there as well. So some of the artists have worked with kelp um, and we've found materials from, from the beaches. Um, yeah, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting pairing. We, we, we're so thrilled to be able to show next to the Balok artists. Fantastic. So the details of the exhibition, it's Dark Water by Erin Coates and Anna Natsari at Linden New Arts, so 26 Ackland Street in St Kilda. And you've been uh, going for about a week, according to my notes here, 4th of May, uh, and then mm-hmm. running running till the 23rd of June. Yes, yep. I mean, I'm, I'm not over in Melbourne anymore, so, I, you know, it's, it was a little strange to open it and then leave. Um, but, you know, we, we put so much work into this. This is, this is really the culmination of, you know, almost two years making the film, um, uh, all of the sculptural objects, the scrimshaw, the drawings. So, um, yeah, we feel very proud to have created this body of work and um, we really hope that uh, people find different kinds of entry points into it as well. Fantastic. Erin, thanks so much for joining us this morning and we will put all those details uh, to your exhibition on our Facebook page uh, and people can get along and have a look for it for themselves. So just at Linden Arts Centre, 26 Ackland Street in St Kilda. So very easy, very accessible and uh, a really great place to go and look at this wonderful exhibition. Have a great Sunday. Thanks so much again for joining us today. Thanks for having me on Radio Marinara. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Bye for now. Yeah. Erin uh, Coates there, all the way over in Perth. The scrimshawing is fascinating. I yeah. have to go and check that out. It's um, yeah, a lot of pressure. Uh, while we've just been speaking with Erin uh, Coates about her exhibition, there's another one that I wanted to mention. This is uh, Every Grain of Sand, Life in the Tidal Zone. So photographs and assemblages by Judy Keneally, uh, who is a very long-time passionate subscriber and, and supporter of Triple R. And so this is at the Wellspring Centre, 10 Y Street, Ashburton. And uh, I believe you can go and join the artist for afternoon tea this afternoon from 1.30 until 4. Uh, I'm going to see if I can get along to that because the images that I've seen are absolutely beautiful. So every grain of sand, life in the tidal zone and the details for that are Wellspring Centre, 10 Y Street, just a letter Y, Ashburton. Here we Kate are again, Bron. Here we quite, are again. Kate and I kept looking at each other because we, we sort of have this history of this noise segment that you prepared some months ago and we always get to the end of the program and we've sort of run out of time. And you, you and I were looking at each other while we were speaking with Erin going, what are we going to do? <laughs> well, I've got really long sleeves. Yeah. So I'm keeping all these things are hidden. You? Oh, there's so much hidden up there. I think we just so have to have the Cade show. <laughs> We can bring out all your segments. I don't think I could handle listening to myself for an hour. I wouldn't subject everyone else to that. (laughs) But I did have something, just a quick one, just in relation to what we had Rex talking about earlier with the mines. Um, Actually, a lot of the research around underwater noise and the beginning of the research around underwater noise began because of mines. So part of it was during the war effort. They were looking at putting mines out and mines are actually triggered by noise. And it was one of those things that I don't think anyone really considered the fact that there were noises in the ocean. They just figured it was a silent place. So when they started, you know, basically doing some research as to what what um, noise levels to trigger these things off, they sort of started putting hydrophones out to record the background noise of what was in the ocean. And that was that eureka moment of Mm. oh hang on there's a lot going on out there we hadn't expected this and it was basically the u.s navy put these hydrophones all over the place sort of everywhere covering a lot of space and a lot of it was to get this background noise for the you know 
to put the mines out. But what it does is it created this huge amount of information and being the world as it was at that time um, and the Navy or the Defence Forces being what they are, they sat on it, of course, and they sort of kept it to themselves. It was one of those things and it's only sort of slowly been trickling out. And so when it comes to noise in the ocean, it's otherwise known, and I like this word, soundscape ecology. Okay. So, And now this is something, again, I don't have much experience in this area. It's just something I'm quite curious in. So if we have any listeners that um, have experience or have worked in this area, I'd love to hear from you and love to get you in for a chat. But basically it's a rapidly growing field with about 93% of all scientific articles published since 2010. Oh, wow. So 93%? 93% of the work done in soundscape ecology. In, in the last eight, eight and a half years? Pretty much. Nine years? Yeah. Wow. So it said like it, it is something that we sat on for a long time. And it's now starting to get out there. It's, it's going crazy. Yeah, mm. absolutely crazy. So I think I'm running out of time. So that was my teaser. Okay. Um, that's not eating into my segment. I've got plenty more to talk about. Um, and I will one day get around to bad life decisions being made when it's too noisy. Just think of a nightclub and the decision you've made at a nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> Ken's Ken in agreement. <laughs> yeah. On that note, thank you very much. Kate. It was a pleasure, Brian. And it thank was. you, Kent, very much. Kent's going to be here right throughout Radiotherapy coming up very shortly. And thanks to our other guests today, Erin Coates, who we've just been speaking with uh, from Perth, uh, Jackie Younger, who's been down in, did she say Rye? She was at Dramana when she spoke to us, but she yes. said, get out in the water, go everywhere. Excellent. And thanks, Rex, for bringing us up to speed on the Iron... Um, Throne? Yeah. Crown. <laughs> Crown. <laughs> It's been a very strange show today. On next week's program, um, Jeff's going to be in with uh, his his uh, radio wave segment. Uh, Fom's going to be in and hopefully we'll have kind of recovered by that time, but picking ourselves up and working out where we go from there. So I'm... Um... This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.